Who are the best Christians, do you reckon? Who are the greatest Christians in church history? You know a few famous Christians? Know some of the Christians in the past? Who do you reckon are the greatest? Maybe you think of someone like Martin Luther. There he was 500 years ago. He stood almost alone against a corrupt church and he changed nations. Is he the greatest? Or maybe you think of a missionary like Gladys Aylward. She was this weak little woman. Well, she looked weak. She proved not to be because she had the backbone to go to China as a missionary, although the mission agencies rejected her. Who are the greatest Christians? Or let's change it slightly. Who are the best Christians you know personally? Who do you reckon are the best Christians you know personally? I expect you've got some opinion on that. So what sort of people are you thinking of? How are you working out who's the best? I reckon that we tend to judge it by this sort of thing. How active people are. The people who've got an awful lot done. Involvement in church life. How much they come along and they serve and they're committed and they keep going and how able and productive their contribution is. Are those the sort of people you're thinking of? Now, I hope that you know that I'm all for activity and I'm all for church involvement. I want to encourage activity and I want to encourage church involvement. But they are not the right measure of spiritual health. You can have activity and church involvement and be dead. You could be the most impressive church member who's been so committed and be far away from God and no one else realise it. In fact, the best Christian could be totally obscure, would never feature in a church history book, not able to do anything much at all. Maybe someone who's really not able, look very unimpressive and might even have a life just racked with problems. Because the best Christian is a matter of character. Now, you might be objecting to me talking about the best Christian. You might say, this is completely the wrong way of thinking. This is the wrong way of speaking. Who's the best Christian? But I will defend what I'm doing this way. Jesus talked about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he did it to change the disciples' view of greatness. He did it to completely reverse their idea of greatness. He did it to correct their understanding of what God values. And if you want to, you can look that up in Matthew 18. Who's the greatest? And I'm trying to do the same thing this evening. But instead of doing it from Matthew 18, let's do it from a verse that tells you whom God thinks highly of. And it's Isaiah 66, verse 2. Let's turn to Isaiah 66, verse 2. If you've got an English Bible, it's page 804, if it's a church Bible, I mean. And if it's Chinese, it's in the first part, page 1217. Isaiah 66, verse 2. And just the second half of the verse. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. 
Here is the person God esteems. Here is the person God says he thinks highly of. And it has nothing here about activity and church involvement. Well, in fact, it does in the next verse, in case you think, because I'm only going to use that half of the verse. I'm not going to refer at all to the context. So in case you think I'm ripping it out of context and doing strange things, verse 3 talks about the person who is involved in the temple and who looks impressive as he goes to sacrifice his bull. But God says... To me, he's just like someone killing a man because his character is wrong. Here is the character in verse 2 that God values, described in three ways. Humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. And really, it's the same character described in three ways. The three go together. The three are actually all outworkings of an awareness of God. I'm hoping as we go along to show It's all about being aware of God. So let's take the three to build up a picture of what we should be like. uh, To get us judging spiritual life and health, not by activity and church involvement, but by character. So let's start with the first one. Verse 2, this is the one I esteem, he who is humble. Humble. What is humility? What's humility? Humility is having a right estimation of yourself before God. Humility is having a right view of what you're like in God's sight. Now that makes it very different for what people often think humility is. So, to take a slightly silly example, the concert pianist who says she's no good at playing the piano, that's not humility, that's just empty talk, that's just a bit silly. Pretending we're no good at anything isn't humility. For most people, that's just not true. Humility is seeing how small and weak and unimportant and particularly how sinful you are compared with God. Which of course affects your attitude to others, but it's primarily, do you see how you are before God? Now, I said all three of these are outworkings of awareness of God, and hopefully you see straight away, this one clearly is. Because the more aware we are of God, the more understanding we have of who he is, the more we think about him and relate our daily life to him instead of comparing our daily lives to others, the more we'll have a right view of who we are. And that is the key to humility. Verse 2, God esteems he who is, the one who is humble. Well, we better do some checking. Are you humble? We could do this a whole load of ways, but I want to just pick one this evening. Just one way. Now, our society loves films and TV programmes and stories with a bad guy in them. Yeah, we like to have a real bad guy that we can feel superior to. In fact, I reckon this is why... There are so many films and programmes about evils back in history. We like to look at those evils back in history. Let's take the evil slave trader. And we see the evil slave trader, and we see the spineless people around him who aren't standing up against him and are just going along with things, and we see all that, and we feel so superior. If I was there, I would be different. If I was there, I'd do differently, and we can feel superior. But it's not just our society. Is it you? Do you feel superior 
Uh, let's, let's make it close to home. Do you feel superior to anyone at Hollywell? Now, this can get quite subtle because we can feel superior to other people because we think, they're pretty proud. Oh, those proud people at Hollywell, that, that proud person. And we feel superior because they're rather proud. Do you feel superior to Christians elsewhere who are less well taught? Do you feel superior to the ordinary people on your street or in our town? They're just, they're just living for money and they're just living for pleasure. Oh dear, don't they realise how empty it is? Do you feel superior? To people who are less thoughtful than you. Some people are so thoughtless, aren't they? Do you feel superior? Now, there's always a danger with these sorts of questions because you might think the aim of this is to get you to feel guilty. Well, I must feel superior to other people and it must be that the answer is I ought to feel guilty. No, my aim is not to get you to feel guilty. The aim is to get you to think honestly about yourself. And the honest answer might be, no, I don't feel superior to them. Doesn't it follow from the verse that that will be the answer for some people because there are some people God esteems. So the aim is not to get you to feel guilty. The aim is to get you to think honestly. And the answer might be, no, actually, I don't feel superior to others. But the honest answer might be, yes, actually, I do feel superior to some people. And that is pride. What should we do about it? Oh, I must be humble. I must be humble. I'm a miserable wretch. I must think more about what a miserable wretch I am. Is that the answer? Well, if, if you've tried it, you'll know. It doesn't work very well. It's well known, isn't it? You can't pull yourself up by your bootlaces. You know that phrase, don't you? You can't pull yourself up by your bootlaces. But if you think about it, you also can't pull yourself down by your bootlaces. Go home and give it a try this evening and uh, see if you can pull yourself down by your bootlaces. We can't do it. So the answer is not in self. The answer is, surprise, surprise, in Jesus. Consider him survey him, especially on his cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. And if you have really surveyed him on the cross, isn't it true? Isn't our pride then so contemptible? It took that to deal with my sin. It took that to make me clean. It took that to turn God's wrath away from me. It took that to bring the work of the Holy Spirit, who's the only one who can change this rotten heart. And more positively, that is love. That is obedience. And what is my love and obedience compared with that? So yes, your life might be better than the person whose life consists of making money and just going for pleasure. I hope it is. But it's not that you're superior. It's that God has worked in you and he didn't have to and you didn't do anything to earn it. Now, it's not clear if this is a true story. I hope it is. Um, but it's one of these stories that does the rounds and it's not clear if it's true. It said that John Bradford was a preacher in the 16th century here in England and he was watching criminals being taken to the gallows and he said the famous words, there, now what is it? 
but for the grace of God, there go I. Not clear if this phrase really did come from him, but it's a good story anyway. And it's a good phrase. There but for the grace of God go I. In other words, yes, I'm different from them. I haven't committed their crimes. I'm not deserving of that execution. But it's all the grace of God. Or to put it a different way, Paul wrote to a proud church, they felt superior. Oh, they felt superior to everyone in so many ways. You know who they were? The Corinthians. And what did he say? He said, for who makes you different from anyone else? He didn't deny they were different. They were pretty impressive in some ways. But who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now this is Christian ABC, isn't it? We all know this. But do we really think it? And not just about criminals on the news. Oh yes, there but for the grace of God go I. It's easy to think it about them. What about people in church we're criticising in our mind? Or we're thinking about the faults they have? Humble. God esteems the humble. Is it you? Let's take the next one. Back in verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit. Now, this is a less familiar word to us, contrite. What is being contrite? The Hebrew word here is hit. That's odd, isn't it? What is hit? He who is hit in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it might make it a bit easier to see the roots of the English word is bruised. That goes with being hit, doesn't it? Yeah, you've been hit and you get bruised, bruised in spirit. Does that make it a little clearer? Do you ever feel bruised over something? Lose a job, fail an exam and feel bruised over it. What's this feeling bruised? Well, the idea here is God has hit you in the spirit with a sense of your sin and you're feeling bruised. But what a sinner, seeing something of what a sinner you are. Now, again, it's outworking, it's an outworking of awareness of God. When did Isaiah feel bruised by his sin? You know? Isaiah 6, when what had happened to him? He'd seen the Lord. He'd seen the Lord, and he said, He says, Oh, look at that. I've done a few sins. Oh, I'm not quite as good as him. No, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm ruined. I'm in trouble. I'm a sinner. I'm unclean. When he was aware of the God he sinned against, he feels bruised over what he's like. Sometimes I'm walking along the road and I let out a groan and I say, oh, you fool, what were you thinking of? And then I sort of hope there was no one around in earshot because they'll think I'm talking to them and wonder what's going on. What is going on? I've just thought of something I've done and I've thought of the people who saw it. That's the key thing. I've thought of the people who saw it. I think, oh dear, what do they think of me? You fool, you idiots, I say to myself. Because what do they think of me? But then I think, and what does God think of me with all the sin he's seen in me? Does that make me groan? Does that make me say, you idiot, what were you thinking of? Do you ever get that feeling? Well, what, what has, God has seen those sins. Do they make you groan? 
Well, they will if you have some awareness of him. Let's think some more about what being contrite is like. In the 1990s, in South Africa, apartheid had come to an end, and they had this thing called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And people came, and they publicly admitted terrible things they'd done, and they asked for forgiveness. And it's amazing the effect that it had in that nation. But when it was the turn of Winnie Mandela, the former wife of Nelson Mandela, up she got, and she's supposed to take her turn. And what did she do? She gave vague words about, well, it was a hard time, and hard things were done on all sides. That's, that's basically all she could say about it. And it was generally reckoned an embarrassment, a non-apology. Now, we're used to that from politicians, They're sorry if someone was offended. That's what they say, don't they? We're sorry if so-and-so was offended. Not they're sorry that they've done something wrong. The Christian should never have the politician's apology. To be contrite is not to play down your sin. It's not to excuse your sin. It's not to make comparisons with others to try to feel a bit better about your sin. It's not to just regret that your sin is now getting you some trouble. It is to feel how wrong you've been. To give a more positive example than Winnie Mandela, uh, there was a man I knew at a previous church. His name was Chris. And he he would groan about his sin. I remember him saying to me what a sinner he'd been and how badly he'd sinned. And I said to him, I had an agenda behind saying this. I said, oh, Chris, it's not that big a deal, is it? It's not really your fault, is it? No, didn't other people provoke you? I was saying that purposely because I knew him and I knew what his reaction would be. And his reaction was, yes, it is a big deal and yes, it is my fault and no, there isn't an excuse. I said, there you go then. There's your answer. You are not like Adam. You're not like Adam passing the blame onto others, excuse making. There's your encouragement. You are contrite. And what does our verse say? God esteems the contrite. What's the point of saying this? Well, if you are not contrite, but thinking it's all okay because of my church involvement, because of my activity, because, well, I'm a Christian, it must be all right, I'm aiming to expose that to you. But it's also for encouragement. If you are contrite, if your sin troubles you, if actually you even see pride in yourself and it troubles you, well, actually, that is a sign of humble contrition, to see your pride and be troubled by it. God esteems you. God has this simple, clear promise for you. If you confess your sin, not sweep it under the carpet, confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners, people who faced up to it, they're sinners, to repentance. Humble, contrite, let's get back to verse 2. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at my word. Now, who's been in the news recently for trembling? It's a bit funny, isn't it? There's someone been in the news for trembling. Angela Merkel. Because she's been trembling. And people worry, is she ill? And is she too frail for the job? Because we don't 
generally esteem people highly for trembling. It's not generally a quality that is highly esteemed. But God does. What does it mean? Well, you may not literally tremble, but it's meaning this. He looks for people who are deeply affected by his words. People who read what he's like and fear him. People who discover about eternal life and eternal death in the Bible and are intimidated. People who read his warnings and his promises and take them seriously. People who get a glimpse of the Son of God dying on the cross and are awestruck. In other words, people who don't just shrug off what the Bible says. Now, again, this is an outworking of awareness of God. Think of it this way. A teacher says to a pupil, if you do that again, you'll be in big trouble. Now, if the pupil does it again, what does the pupil think of the teacher? Not much. Because if you don't take much notice of someone's word, you don't think much of them. And so we haven't got much respect for God if we don't tremble at his word. Now, that's that's pretty obvious. But let's examine ourselves. Let's think a bit more about this trembling at God's word. What sort of people get esteemed at church, if we're honest about it? There's all sorts of answers to this, but I reckon one group of people is people who can discuss the Bible. People who've got good, helpful contributions in home group. People with a good knowledge of the Bible. People who can teach the Bible. Now, it's not wrong. I'm not trying to get you to not esteem such people. But it is possible to have all of that and not tremble at God's word. It is, in fact, very easy. Recently in home group, we thought about Hebrews 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be honoured by all, for God will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. It would be quite easy to discuss that in home group, to know it well, and even to teach it all to others, and then be careless about what you look at on the internet, and let lustful thoughts run riot in your mind. It would be quite easy. And you'd be probably pretty esteemed by people at church, and not by God, because you're not trembling at his word, taking it seriously. And for those who are feeling superior now to those people who have trouble with lusts and look at dodgy things on the internet, yeah, well, it would be quite easy to feel superior to them and discuss Hebrews 13 in your home group and go home and carry on doing what the next verse talks about, loving money and planning how to get more. And what you're going to do with it. It's so easy to discuss and not tremble, not take seriously what God's word says. Or to put it a different way, it's easy to keep up your Bible reading plan and to feel pleased with yourself as you've you've got a good amount of Bible reading done over this last week. But not be stopping and asking yourself, what am I supposed to tremble at here? Not be slowing down to consider, what am I supposed to do about this? Don't you find, isn't that so easy? Yeah, you get into the pattern and you get your reading done and you feel pleased because you've got it done and it's, it's all passed over so quickly and you haven't stopped to tremble at God's word and consider, what is he saying to me? How is he supposed to be, how is this supposed to be grabbing my heart? 
Or to put it a different way, the Bible has many warnings to Christians, not just to unbelievers, to Christians. If you don't forgive others your sins, here's one of them, if you don't forgive others your sins, your father will not forgive your sins. And what's easy to do? It's easy to sweep it aside. Well, I'm a Christian, so it can't really mean I won't end up forgiven. No, it must all be all right in the end and sweep it aside. We're not trembling at his words. Actually, it shouldn't be easy, should it? It shouldn't be easy for us if we're aware of God. And that this isn't just some old book that we happen to study. It's what he is saying to me now. Imagine, let's put it this way, imagine a boy is told by his mother, go to your room and tidy it up and hoover the carpet. And off he goes to his room and two hours later he comes back and he says, Mum, I've spent time thinking about what you said. Mum, I've written down what you said on post-it notes and I've put it around my room. I've highlighted the different words and I've thought about it. I've, I've thought... I wonder which was the verb you were really emphasising. Was it go, or was it tidy, or was it hoover? Mum, I've memorised what you've said. I've memorised it, I can tell you it. It was go and tidy your room and hoover the carpet. I can say it in Greek, you know. Wow, that would be good, wouldn't it? Mum, do you know what? I've been praying about what you've said. Oh, he's spiritual, this boy. But is his mother impressed? Uh, Mother's here, you know the answer, don't you? Of course she's not impressed. She just wants to know, has he done it? The Bible doesn't say God esteems the person who can discuss his word. It doesn't say that God esteems the person who's good with the Bible reading plan. I'm all for having a Bible reading plan. It doesn't say God esteems the person who's memorised it. It's jolly good to memorise it. But it doesn't say God esteems such a person. It says he esteems the person who trembles at it, takes it seriously. How should I respond to it? Well, this is one person being described in three ways here. Humble, contrite and trembles. But let's lastly get some case studies. I've been trying to get us to have a measure of spiritual health in line with God's word, God's measure. As I've said, I'm all for activity, I'm all for church involvement, but I I tend to think we get bamboozled by them and we allow them to to obscure the importance of character. And two case studies from the Bible should help us. And the first, as you might guess, is Saul in 1 Samuel 15. This is why we read about King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Now, if you want activity and you want church involvement... Well, you couldn't get much better than Saul. He's the king. He's the king. He's been anointed to top position among God's people, God's Old Testament church. And he's not just a leader. He's a a very active leader. And he's a very gracious leader. When there are people who look down on him, he deals with it graciously. And he's not just that. He's a spiritual leader. He prophesies. He speaks God's word in an ecstatic way by the power of the spirits. Because you probably know what's coming, well, you do because we've read 1 Samuel 15, it's hard to take in just how good 
Saul's start is and how impressive Saul is. But in chapter 15, we discover God does not esteem him. Why? Well, he had been humble. Did you notice verse 17 when we read it? You were once small in your own eyes. And you may know the story of how he thought, no, I can't be king. No, I'm I'm a nobody. And even when they come around to anoint him as king, do you remember, it's comical. Do you remember what happened to Saul? They're looking, where's the king gone? Oh, he's hiding among the baggage. It's it's comical almost. He, he, He once had a low view of himself. He had such a good, humble start. But now by chapter 15, did you notice why Samuel couldn't track him down? Samuel went off to find him, and where was he? Oh, he was off making a monument in his own honour. It's amazing how a bad start can fail to follow through. And now he's king, he thinks he can pick and choose what to say, what to do from God's words. Which commands of God to obey? That is pride. I can pick and choose what I do. And when Samuel rebukes him, did you... Were you amazed at his response in chapter 15? He comes up to Samuel and he says, I've I've obeyed the Lord. And Samuel says, well, what's this bleating of the cattle I hear? And and he still insists, I have obeyed the Lord. It's it's bizarre. He hadn't obeyed the Lord, but he insists he had. Why? By just ignoring some bits, watering down others. And then he repeatedly, once, once, oh yeah, okay, we were supposed to do that, but what does he do? Blame it on the soldiers. Pass the buck to others. Or, well, I've done it in order to sacrifice for others. And yes, eventually he says, I have sinned, but it's all so light and easy. I've sinned, but come on, let's go and worship. It's just easy to deal with this little sin. He's nothing like contrite. And he didn't tremble at God's word. He thought he could pick and choose which bits of God's word to do and it will all come out all right in the end. And even when he's told the kingdom is going to be torn from you, this word from God doesn't bother him. He thinks, come on, let's go and worship. It will all turn out all right. God can't really make that big a deal of this little thing. Saul is a solemn example. It's hard for us from this distance and knowing the bad end to take in the good start, to take in his position, his impressiveness, his spiritual experience, even his sacrifices don't make up for failure to be humble, contrite and tremble at God's words. What does make up for failure to be humble, contrite and tremble at God's words? All those things Saul had didn't make up for it. What does make up for it? The answer is nothing. Nothing. Oh, you might be a bit surprised by that. You say, surely that's not right. Surely the death of Jesus makes up for it. No. Jesus makes up for sin. Including the sin of having been proud and hard-hearted and dismissing God's word, but for those who are humble, contrite, and tremble at his words. Oh, you say, are you preaching works justification? No, it's not that we're perfectly humble, contrite, and tremble at God's words. 
It's not how good we are at being humble and contrite and trembling at God's word. But we do have to have enough humility to see our need. We do have to have enough contrition to admit our sin and be sorry for it. We do need enough trembling at God's word to say, Jesus, I need mercy from you. Remember Saul, very solemn example. Let's turn to another case study. We'll just have one other, and it's the one Malcolm read to us. Luke chapter 18, it is of course the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now Malcolm's uh, introduction to this was helpful uh, because we have a problem with this and it isn't just with the tax collector, it's with the Pharisee because we read Pharisee and we think baddie, don't we? But they didn't. They would hear Pharisee and they would think, good guy. They would think, oh, someone who takes the Bible seriously. He's not a Sadducee. The Sadducees were the theologically dodgy ones. The Pharisees were basically what we'd call evangelicals. The Pharisee, well, if they had an equivalent of our Christian conferences, the Pharisee is the one you'd pay money to go and hear preach. And when he says, I'm not like the adulterer, when he says, I'm I'm not a robber, when he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, it would have been true. He was like that. But God does not esteem him because he's not contrite, he's not humble, and he doesn't tremble before God. But let's not dwell on him. We've already had a negative one from Saul. Let's be more positive. Let's move on to the tax collector. Who esteems tax collectors? What Jewish person would say, I'm going to put my son through a top education so when he grows up, he can be a tax collector. And he can work for the Romans and he can get rich by by being dishonest and grinding the poor in the dust. No one. But God esteemed this tax collector because he is a model of humility. He stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And he's a model of contrition. He beat his breast, he feels it. I'm a sinner. In fact, it, it, it is literally, I'm the sinner, which might be, I'm the sinner that Pharisee is talking about. I'm that one, and I feel it. And he's a model of trembling at God's word. I need mercy. I need, what does mercy mean? I need to be pitied and rescued from God's wrath. Now, isn't he an encouragement? You might be nervous about coming into church. Uh, You might stand or sit at a distance, feeling an outsider. You might be guessing at what other people might think of you. You might be unable to string together a prayer of more than seven words and yet be esteemed by God. So do take Isaiah 66 verse 2 seriously. Take it seriously if you are not humble, contrite and tremble at God's word. Whatever else you might have, whatever else you might have done, You haven't got evidence of life from God. Because evidence of life from God will include being humble, contrite and trembling at God's word. Take that seriously. 
Don't dismiss it because of your church record. That will be the complete opposite of what this verse is saying. So what should you do about it? Despair? Give up? No, be humble enough to admit the lack. Be contrite. In other words, be sorry for your pride and your excuse making. Tremble at the example of Saul you've heard and the warnings you've heard this evening and flee to Jesus and cry to him, have mercy on me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Take Isaiah 66 verse 2 seriously. But take Isaiah 66 verse 2 seriously if you are humble and contrite and tremble at God's word. Now, I know there's a problem here, because if you're humble, you probably don't think you are. So there's a bit of a difficulty here. But it is humility to recognise pride and to see what you are before God. So if that is you, and you're contrite, and you take God's word seriously, and you can't just shrug off what it says... Take Isaiah 66 verse 2 seriously. God esteems you. Whatever you might think about yourself, whatever others might think about you, God esteems you. Humble, contrite, trembling. That doesn't sound very attractive to most people. That doesn't sound very enjoyable to most people. So, Does all of this mean being a Christian is miserable? It's just a life of being miserable. No, because the tax collector went home justified. No, because God, what did it say at the end of Luke 18? He exalts those who humble themselves. No, because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. No, because what did Jesus say? Blessed, happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And above all, no, because the cross that humbles us as we survey it also lifts us up as it reconciles us to and gets us a welcome with God.